The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa, and welcome to Business is Boring. If you've been following local design, you would have seen the growth of the local luxury goods maker Yumei with their dear Napa bags, first finding fans among friends, then growing across the country into three retail stores of their own, a large online community and international success in only seven years. A big part of that success is that founder Jesse Wong applies the same design thinking to growing the business as to imagining and realising the products. And to talk that journey, making a brand for a community, and what's next, founder Jesse Wong joins us now. Tanakwe, thanks for Tanakwe. being here. Thanks for having me. Hey, tell me about the start of the idea. How did you come to want to be making leather bags? Yeah, I guess as simple as it really could have been, I couldn't find a bag that would fit my laptop, my lunchbox, my uh, visual diary, my charger, makeup bag, AirPods, Sunnies, like the kitchen sink. And yeah, I just really couldn't find a bag that would fit everything I needed in a day. And so I ended up making one. Um, But I really felt like handbags at the time were kind of Very much like if they had uh, leathers with integrity or really beautiful hardware, they were quite small and really made for women's blueprint in society a hundred years ago. can fit your love letters in your lipstick. That was the Chanel blueprint. And, you know, I really thought because, you know, women are primarily the target market for handbags. I just couldn't believe that you couldn't find everything that would suit your workday. So I ended up making one. Yeah, that's so so strange. And what kind of handbags? Because you kind of think about um, handbags and it's like, it's almost kind of like um, uh, a trope that like uh, a woman has everything in there that they could possibly imagine. But so so what kind of handbags um, didn't have the, the space or the capacity or the room to put stuff in? Um, or I guess all of the handbags that were on the market at the time. Um, either, you know, the zip was just a couple centimetres too short to fit your laptop or, you know, and I just found all of those kind of utilitarian aspects to products that weren't completely functional, very sort of infuriating, you know, it should be easy. And I felt like the option really was um, a backpack that had packing cells and was really kind of, you know, sporty and ticky or uh, it was like a canvas tote were kind of the options at the time. Yeah. And you were at fashion school at the time, were you? Mm -hmm. Had you thought that you'd be going to fashion school and then go into this enormous great rabbit hole of um, bags and leather? Or what did you think you were going there with with kind of a path out of? I mean, I think I always knew that I wanted to have my own business in some kind of way. I'm not sure that I knew what that would be. Um, And I also knew that I wanted to study fashion. So I'm not sure there was like a clear kind of, you know, I could see the the end of the rainbow. Um, But I knew that I wanted to do something and then handbags I just started making them and I worked at a store in Dunedin at the time called Slick Willies and um, they noticed them and said where did you get that bag from and and when you start making them bring them to us so it kind of like demand pulled it into 
you know, real life um, and, and my friends wanted them and, and I'd sort of been making them through uni, so. And if anyone doesn't know Slick Willies, that's like uh, kind of the premier uh, fashion store in yes. Dunedin, hey? an institution, absolutely. Yeah, that's so cool. And so you started making these bags and then, well, you made it for yourself or your friends or? Yeah, so the design, like the genesis was really... Um, each design kind of started with the problem of one of my friends who had a need that wasn't being met. So Brady, for example, which is, you know, still today our best-selling bag, which I can't quite believe because it's been seven years. But Brady was sort of, you know, queen of the law school, very diligent. She would take her study notes and her water bottle and really like park up at the, at the library. Um, and her kind of thing was that she could like she'd always overstuff her bag and so that Brady bag um I remember making like six different patterns for it and studying plastic supermarket shopping bags now extinct because the pattern on the side it's a utilitarian item designed to be a weight and so I took the pattern from the plastic supermarket shopping bag and designed it into like this beautiful kind of leather bag um, made out of deer napper which is so buttery soft and drapey it's very Mary Poppins style and it fits all of those things but if you don't have all of those things and it kind of drapes down and so yeah that, that kind of was named after her and then just kind of, you know, people obviously resonated with that problem and where there's one, there's sort of a hundred. And so I kept on working with that design format or framework um, to come up with new designs. And they're all kind of named after people close to me that, you know, had a, a problem to solve. What were some of the other problems you were solving? Um, I mean, you know, so they could be very serious, like the, the Studious Brady um, kind of uh, issue, or they could be kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Another one of our really um, top bags that has stayed around for a long time in the range is the Vi bag, which is named after my great grandmother. And she was a woman very ahead of her time. She wore pants and hung around with artists and shirked expectations. She smoked from one of those long cigarette holders, very cool. And she kind of said, toward the end of her life that her one regret was all the parties she missed. So we made a little party bag that's cross-body and you can be hands-free, you know, if you're <laughs> dancing till 6am. And I think there's utility in that also. But caveat, um, she, Vi was also a very, like, smart uh, woman and she was ducks of her school. And I think I really, like, admired her so much. I, I actually didn't, never got to meet her. But, um, yeah, I think there's just as much utility in um, wanting to have fun than, you know, going to study at the library. Not that that's not fun either, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and that's so cool to be able to uh, tell stories and link things back to things that are important to you, like your friends or, or family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all kind of, you know, they all follow that format and some of them are, we have another, like our biggest bag is... Um, the Claudia Tote, and it's named after Claudia Batten, who I've met more recently, well, I've known her for years now, but definitely more recently in the scheme of things. But Claudia, you know, used to fly from LA to New Zealand a lot, and I had this problem as well, just finding a bag that was big enough to, like, take enough things for the weekend, but then also wouldn't fall off your suitcase if you were running through the airport. And so it's just little things like that. You know, that bag has a zip pocket on the back that, you know, you can close and use this pocket or unzip and slip over your suitcase and it just doesn't go anywhere. And I think, you know, just just little things like that that make your life easier. Yeah. And that kind of um, blending of utility and need and a problem, but with something that's kind of beautiful and luxurious and covetable, uh, 
quite fresh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it had to also speak to my design aesthetic. I was, a, you know, at, in fashion school and um, I guess that was the issue <laughs> with the, the backpacks and the canvas totes. Um, but then also, you know, things that had leathers and materials with integrity, I also thought, you know, that would last a long time, that weren't like weird colours or have little finicky design details. You know, we always used to say if there's a design problem to be solved and it's not working out, don't try and push it forward or cover it up with like a, I don't know, a button or whatever. Always take it 10 steps back and think about it. If this was simple or if this was easy, how would it like, how would it come together? Which I think is, you know, probably what you apply through lots of things in business. But yeah, in terms of design, I always try and, I don't know, like peel back the the process and, and it's not simple because it's easy. It's just simple because we spent a lot of time getting there. Yeah, like that great expression, then you all fool could make something complicated. It takes like real work to make something simple. Yeah, well, I think, you know, you know the main freight building when you... Yeah, yeah I it, love those little um, it inspirational said, it's signs. simple, not easy. And I was like, yeah, true. Yeah. And how do you go about making bags? As, you know, there's probably... Um, if we went back 40 years ago, there'd probably be all kinds of places to make bags in New Zealand. But after the 80s, how do you go about making bags? Yeah, I think I was in a little time capsule down in Dunedin. I mean, you can kind of like figure out how to make anything, but leather craft, um, there's so much tradition in it. And you do kind of like the skills are intergenerational and they get passed down. Um, but I was pretty fortunate that there was still kind of one remaining um, leather craftsman in Dunedin, Bill Drake, and he had a little workshop studio on um, Rattray Street. And he would never, like, I would go in and say, okay, I'm going to, could I please buy this piece of leather? Or, you know, I want to, I'm trying to make this bag. And he would never just, like, do a rivet, which is what his normal business or service was for everyone else. He'd always be like, all right, come here and make me do it myself and show me and teach me. And I spent hours and hours there um, throughout uni. I mean, basically you had to like put three hours aside if you're going to go visit Bill because he would tell you all of his life stories and make you learn how to, I don't know, do the feathering on a belt or, or edge painting or lots of these skills that I think, you know, were so lost. So I could make them myself, which was really useful because in New Zealand there's really, you know, sort of no one who can do it for you. And I think um, that was really vital to the early sort of stages of the business, being able to prototype but then also do all of the production, which is how we started. Yeah, and to actually know, uh, you, you know, any pattern is like, any pattern for any kind of um, piece of clothing or bag or anything that you make with um, sewing is just the most extraordinary three-dimensional maths problem to solve. And I think like lots of people, maybe under, because clothes and bags and everything are so available, I think a lot of people who don't know what goes into making something really underestimate just how complicated and, and how much human touch and feel is involved. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't <laughs> quite know how people think things get made, but it's definitely, you know, all handmade. Or they think, you know, you can just draw a picture and send it off to a factory and she'll be <laughs> she'll be right. And they, that's that's not how nice things are made. I know, but even at factories, there are incredible craftspeople there, you know, putting things together and solving problems on the fly, um, no matter where you get something made. So. And how did you go about growing the business? Like, were there any kind of like key turning points or when you knew that it was what you could kind of go all in on? I guess when I 
started UMA. I was sort of, you know, 21 and I was still in uni and I'd already like, so UMA is my middle name and I'd already sort of been using that name for all of my collections and just building a bit of an identity. Probably not super with the intention to start a business, it just kind of was me. Uh, And then I started making bags and they sort of took on a life of their own and I spent like kind of years catching up with that production cycle and um, really being able to, you know, fulfill the demand for them. So it was really pulled by market. And in terms of turning points, I think there are like a couple of key things. I I mean, the first couple of years was really building the brand DNA and understanding who we were and what the framework and um, pillars of the business were. And that was really interesting because that actually kind of was born out of like feedback in my um, like final, you know, graduation, which is actually like... I don't know, pretty funny to me that they put all of your feedback in when you walk across the stage and that's where you get it and then you sit there and read it. So if it's bad, you know, that could potentially not be a good day on graduation. But um, (laughs) I remember one of my lecturers, Simon, saying, um, it's okay to turn off the tap of ideas, you know. Um, And I think I had always tried to cram every concept because that's, you know, sort of what you get taught in design school is the process of, of... bringing a design to fruition, original thinking and research and development. And I always tried to pack so much into every design that I had or every collection. And he was like, you can you can just like do a few of them kind of thing. So I think I was I took that quite seriously. And when I started UMA, I was like, this is the framework. These are the, the key things. Um, it's this refined um, sort of reductive design aesthetic it will be um, every bag has to have some kind of utility and you know I'm only going to use that these beautiful leathers that you know or these beautiful materials that are regenerative and and I've always stuck with that and I'm so glad that I did that because you know a brand could go anywhere I always I mean I often think about all of the other things that you could also do and they're always exciting but it's easy to get distracted um, so I think that was like a really really key thing that sort of the first couple of years um, helped me develop and then one of the the biggest kind of you know fortuitous moments was that I was based in Dunedin and the tannery that we worked with New Zealand light leathers was just up the road so they used to send scraps and and bits and pieces down to the degree um down to otago and and they got to learn um with that material you know i got to um design and and twirl and experiment a bit and i think that was really important um and then over time i guess um building our supply chain and meeting our manufacturers and being really persistent in that so barry uncle barry barry parsons who is at new zealand light leathers he always used to tell me about um, the incredible leather fair in milan that he would go to a couple times a year called linear palais um and you know being a student in dunedin that's kind of wow (laughs) (laughs) barry goes to milan this is so cool i want to go um so he used to always tell me about um, the clients that he worked with over there, and one of them was Prada. And I sort of was always like, if Prada uses this, like, you know, he must know who all of their manufacturers are and where you can get, you know, the best kind of quality leather goods made. And so I sort of pestered him for quite a while, and he was sort of like, oh, you know, you're a bit small <laughs> 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 to, you know, be playing in that sort of realm. But over time, I, I guess I was just very persistent, and he ended up introducing me to um, that manufacturer. And then I still had to visit them five times over three years to kind of convince them to work with me and um, 
And then when they finally did say yes, they were kind of like, you're cute. We love like, you know, the design direction. And we think, um, and I, you know, they also, um, I feel like we had lots of like family links and, and things like that um, of being from like similar places. But eventually they said yes. And I was so shocked when they said yes, that we didn't have a collection with us. And so we went back to the hotel that night and designed the whole, we were like, oh, can we just borrow some of this? paper <laughs> and went um, back to the hotel and just like cut the patterns for a whole range on the bed and went back the next day and twiled my first collection with them. So that was definitely a huge turning point and um, being able to really, you know, have, because I'm so finickety about production and, and craft and everything being perfect and I don't know, I made sort of probably the first 500 bags myself and then continued to make you know, probably the first like 5,000 in-house and real, you know, blood, sweat and tears kind of, um, we would be up for like four days and three nights making bags before we had a, a launch or something like that. And I remember being so tired on the fourth morning, like on this rivet press, my hands were bleeding and Adrian, <laughs> who was there with me, um, he's uh, like um, head of production, he just like fell asleep on the floor <laughs> and I was like oh no it's I'm by myself now I've got to pack the rest of these um and then we had to like roll into this launch event at good as gold and stay awake for the next two days anyway yeah so like that I think I was just it was so precious to me it was my entire like you know what I did and I remember kind of when we the orders started scaling up and we went from five stockers to 30 but not only that it was like you know, small orders sort of like to big orders. And, you know, I remember just sitting there like <laughs> being really upset that I would no longer be making bags and that I was going to have to pass that on. But then that made me really determined to figure out what the next step was and find this manufacturer. So I think that was a huge turning point. Yeah, I love it. And we'll be back in a moment to hear how Jessie built the community around the brand and grew it to where it is today. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. And we're back with Jessie Wong of You May. Just before the break there, you were talking about bringing on that dream supplier. 
how were you able to kind of um, plan out and scale up that thinking to do that? Like, uh, it's it's such a tricky thing being on a small series of islands at the bottom of the world and having that kind of scale of thinking and bringing on those people that, that um, are working with Prada, you know, the, the, these absolute people at the top of the industry. Um, was it always the plan to grow to be a, a big brand? Um, I, I, I think that the goalpost always moves. You know, if you had asked me this question like right when I started, the answer would have been, oh, it would be the dream to be stocked across New Zealand. And that actually ended up happening quite quickly. I remember um, getting a call from Sadaf at Good As Gold and she was like, hey, mate, saw your stuff on Instagram. Like, can we book an appointment with you at Fashion Week? And I was like, oh, yes, of course. What time would suit? I have Tuesday at 3 o'clock available. And then <laughs> had to very quickly figure out, like, how to go to Fashion Week and put some <laughs> lights and like what do people do? Yeah. Not sure. So just, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I think, no, I think the goalpost always changes. And, and then when, once you get to a certain stage, you start thinking, what's next? And, and what do I really want out of this? And how do, what, what's the strategy here? So it changes all the time. But I think that, I don't know, I, sur- I, I looked for a lot of opportunity. Like I'm always keen to put my hand up and say yes to something. And I don't shy away from that. I, I feel like I have this like oblivion where I just, you know, I'm sort of like, oh, I'll, I'll get involved with that or I'll be really enthusiastic about that. And that leads to so many learning opportunities, really. Um, and a lot of, you know, that kind of like, business side of things or business acumen, I think, has has come about from asking for opportunities. Um, when I started the brand, I had put in an application. So this relates back to the Herald article about my sick day. So basically, yeah, I like, had this sick day from uni and everybody was going to Shanghai for um, this exchange kind of program we were doing and we were showing at Shanghai Fashion Week. And I only, you know, you can't really work from home in a fashion degree because you have to have access to the sewing machines and I remember time was very limited at that point and I needed to get work done but when I was at home I, I saw like it was the last day to apply for an AMP scholarship and so I did it and I spent like all day writing this application and then realizing like 12 minutes before the you were supposed to enter the thing that um I'd read it wrong and it was like 700 characters not 700 words and so I had to very quickly condense everything and put it in. And I just was like, oh, well, did that in 12 minutes. It's not going to happen, is it? And then I got back from the Shanghai trip and I had an interview for it. And, I, and you know, you just, you go. You Like, it was kind of, wow, they're going to pay for your flights and go up there. That's so fancy, <laughs> you know. But off the back of that, I ended up winning the AMP National Scholarship, which was 10K to start um, your dream or whatever you were doing. And... Alongside that, you know, I was asked if I wanted to join in on this um, woman in leadership program, which was a 12 month course that you had to go up to Auckland 12 times for. And it was all of these, like, it was led by an executive coach and it was all of this communicate, these communication workshops and strategy thinking and how to build culture and all of these, like, amazing opportunities to learn that really, like, wouldn't have come about if you didn't put yourself out there to apply for the scholarship. But then similarly, I think that's always kind of been the case along the way, going out to find opportunities to learn and, and grow the strategy and scale your thinking. And like a few years into Yume, once I'd sort of figured out what the brand was, I started asking around Wellington, you know, people that I worked with uh, for if they knew anyone who would be a great 
sort of female mentor. And, you know, people like love to help the best, you know, advice you'll ever get is going to cost you a cup of coffee. And so I ended up meeting with Sarah Wickens. Um, I'd asked, I think, yeah, so it was Corin Cole, who was our lawyer at AJ Park, who was doing all the trademarking for you, May. She was like, yes, like this would be perfect. And I met Sarah and we just got along super well. And I think really you know, worked very closely with Sarah from that day on, talked to her all the time. She's the founder of Trilogy Skincare, um, really successful um, businesswoman, but also just so generous with her time. I think she really helped me scale my thinking, but it's also just being, you know, in in all of those situations, putting yourself out there. Um, And I think that's kind of, I just think asking for help is what helps you grow. Yeah, and that attitude and mindset of, trying to get better and trying to grow. Some of that is kind of like a link back to design. Hey, where it's kind of like I've got a problem. What what can I what can I how can I think my way to get to the next stage above this problem? But yeah, does does fashion um does the fashion course set uh, up the frameworks for business as well as the frameworks for design? I, I think it, it definitely is the same thinking principles. Absolutely. Because I guess it's all about, you know, figuring out what you want to achieve and then figuring out all the steps to get there. Yeah, yeah, with what you've got. <laughs> yeah. Working out what you can do with that to then or changing the way that it, it's looked at or Yes. Yeah. yeah, totally. And quite often like the constraints that you have around you um really like breed that creativity. I mean, that's something I loved so much about Fia Jones's story, who was on your show as well, and she was saying about that fifteen thousand yeah, yeah, dollars, and like... not being told that it wasn't enough. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. but like, you wouldn't have um, potentially, you know, come to being that stage of ready when you did get, you know, yeah. Um, and and that idea of being really good at business as well as really good at design was that something that um, so you'd always wanted to run a business. Do you find at all in the kind of creative industries like fashion that being really keen on being a really good business person as well as a really great designer um, is a natural fit or is it something you have to do everything yourself or um, how does that go? Yeah, I'd say in New Zealand it has to, it's potentially not a natural fit, but it is a necessity of the size of the industry that we're in here. You know, being able to do everything from sewing the bags to <laughs> figuring out how you're going to, um, I don't know, reconcile your invoices. is It's just um, something that you learn, like kind of baptism by fire. So I think it's, yeah, something that you have to learn, but maybe is not necessarily always the most clean fit. I always had this thing that I wasn't good at maths, but then Sarah made me go to like Accounting 101 and made me understand um, how finances worked. And I kind of went through the biggest sort of learning curve for a couple of years on that, how perpetual inventories work and why it's so important. And if you buy leather in 2018 at this price in this currency, and then there's like a natural kind of yield that you can get out of it. So it's an organic material, so it's not cut and dried. Um, And then you, you know, it changes three currencies and three years have gone by and you get a different amount out of it. Like, and then you sell that bag in 2020, how much money did you make? You know, I think that's something that I've had to ask a lot of like what seem like silly questions on, but you know, ultimately you can't be a passenger in your own journey and you've got to, um, got to have some kind of understanding. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more as sometimes there's this thing that, you know, if you're a creative person, you know, it's okay to be like, oh, the numbers are, but it's all learnable. Like, it's just kind of the stories you tell yourself, isn't it, about whether it's something you can do or something you can't do. 
yes, completely. But I think, you know, I had one teacher in high school who said, oh, when, like, you should drop maths. <laughs> but then I ended up doing physics without maths. So, I mean, you know, it is just like what you get told at a certain point in time that gives you th- that own self-belief. And there's a lot of creativity to bring to all of those sides of things as well. Absolutely. I mean, definitely business strategy and it's all the same as the design process to me. You're designing, you know, the future of what you want to build. And thinking about how you did build the business up, something we haven't chatted about yet is community, which is something that from the outside observing your journey um, has been such a cool part of what you've done. Tell me about some of those things you've done to kind of um, bring people in. And I think in the world of luxury, it, it really spoke to me because I, I love the idea that when you buy a um, beautiful item, you're not just buying the product, you're kind of joining a club and you've taken that to like a really, um, you know, like like, like the, the, the really kind of pure end point of that. Yeah, a really literal place, club you may. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I actually think that it's not the, yes, you buy into the brand story and the lifestyle and things and luxury traditionally, but I don't think that community is actually the traditional route for luxury. I always felt that it was very elitist and... Um, you had to be born into the club. Yeah, totally. Like, literally. literally. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, so I, I never really loved that about it. Um, and I always wanted you, May, to be come one, come all, this place um, that people wouldn't feel like that walking into one of our stores and they could come and learn about the product and, and really participate. And there's no kind of like barrier to entry, obviously, it's a price point. But I think we do lots of things in the community to, um, you know, try and um, include as, you know, as many people who want to, you know, kind of engage with us. And so I'm not sure how that kind of built over time. It was, it's just sort of magnetic. It's part of, I think we're always very open with our whole process and everything we were doing on Instagram. Like Yume's Instagram story used to be, like a reality TV show of, of what the team were up to. Like you saw our birthdays, you saw like all the silly things we were getting up to. And I think that was really fun for a lot of people to follow along. And I think that has given a lot of people in our community the sense of pride of how we've built over time, um, that they've been so engaged with it. But I think where I really saw community and the power of, of that come to fruition um, was over lockdown the first March 2020 lockdown and I think we'd been quite like we knew something was happening um my dad reads a lot of Chinese news and had been following it he's been in medicine in a past life and kind of was really you know cautious of it I remember him calling me on the 6th of January 2020 saying have you booked any flights this year Hong Kong or Europe or any of those places that I used to go and um I was like no and he was like just don't and I was kind of like oh, they're going to be so expensive when I do go to book them. And he was like, well, you know, if they are, they are. Like, just, you know, don't do anything at the moment. Um, And so I think I kind of had this, and that was super early, you know. So went back and started thinking about, I remember creating all of these, like, succession plans for if we got sick and um, trying to mentally prepare the team for what might be coming, and it happened way sooner than I thought it would. But, yeah, I I don't think that we anticipated it would be a lockdown like it was, um, and we didn't know that we wouldn't be able to ship goods and... I had come up with plans, like I moved a bunch of stock to my dad's house because he had he like did shipping of other things from there or had like a 
Postface account or something. And I thought maybe that would be a way, but then of course, you know, we all know that we couldn't. Um, so I think I was just trying to like put as many things in place like that would give us the most options in the situation. Um, and when we went into, well, when, when um, Prime Minister said, uh, you got 48 hours to get yourself together and then we're going into this lockdown, we'd sort of already done a lot of the thinking about what we'd do if we were at home for a long period of time. So we weren't thinking about that. We were thinking, oh my gosh, how are we going to like continue doing business? And we don't know how long this is going to last. And I've got absolutely no idea how I will continue to pay for all of these things that, you know, we have commitments to. And so we have this like mechanism in the business called archive events, which is where we like utilize every single piece of scrap material that we possibly can, all of the overruns of hardware. And we make up all of these kind of one-off funky colored bag designs that might have multiple panels or um, you know, just things that aren't in our main line, which I always thought would be kind of like the seconds of things. And some of them are, and some of them are kind of samples or bits and pieces, but um, they actually ended up over time becoming a more of a bespoke item and something that was more sought after than our main line, which was really interesting. But we had all of these, these bags that we'd been making um, in anticipation of a physical event, which obviously we couldn't do. Um, so Brigitte and I... Um, Brigitte's on my team, um, and she, we just took photos of everything. Like, we put them in the studio and just took photos really rough and ready um, of everything that we could. And then we took the SD card up to, we drove up to Johnsonville and, like, threw it over the fence to our product photographer who was already in isolation. And he, like, grabbed it and, like, ran in, like, don't catch COVID kind of thing. Um, and then we went into lockdown and we and we sort of rallied the team every morning, like 10 a.m. It was like the most effort I've ever put into anything in my life was getting up and like having all the enthusiasm to be on Zoom all day through this whole thing when you're just not sure what's happening. And we decided to build this um, digital archive event. So it was the first time that we really did a digital event. And I had no idea how it would go. I was kind of like, well, everyone's at home, so... Not sure what else there is to do, but hopefully we can make something work and everyone appreciates that we'll send the stock after and like, you know, it'll, yeah, people will get behind it, surely. So we did this and we worked um, with our web developers and with our team to to bring to life this whole com strategy and uh, e-commerce website and all of the photography and built it into this beautiful interactive website that had a photo booth and music and um, all of this fun stuff that kind of emulated what we'd been doing in real life. And then we launched it. And I think, you know, 400 people might have used to turn up to this event in person, um, queues around the corner, and that was really exciting. But when we did it online, we were just in shock because 11,000 people showed up in the waiting room on the countdown timer with me on Instagram Live, the team on Zoom. And it was like we could just communicate with everyone in real time because you can send questions and you can see on Shopify's back end, how many people are sitting there. And I was just astounded. You know, it, the feeling on that day, I mean, we ended up selling out in 16 minutes or something crazy. Um, it, but the, I remember like after all the chaos had kind of died down and the feeling was just electric, like everybody kind of, our customers remember it happening and felt like they were in the same room and it really pulled people together in that time. And we'd been doing like Zooms and we started putting them on Instagram and you know, it was just chatting, not even about bags, just who did a weird fringe cut or, you know, whatever across the time. And I think people really like 
resonated with that and participated really like with their full enthusiasm in that day. Um, and I remember like reflecting on this with the team in the afternoon and Johan, one of our team members saying, it's just so like, you know, when you're in isolation, you don't know if anyone's like going to remember what you do or like, you know, if they're going to show up for you, but people showed up in force that day and it just kind of like lifted everyone's spirits for the rest of the lockdown and also like financially got us through and, and all of the other great things with it. But what it accelerated and what it really demonstrated to us was the power of community, no matter whether you that's physical and then we ended up building all the UMA lounges to be places that we could cultivate this in-person experience and build rapport with our community and they could learn about us and vice versa or digital, you know, it, it kind of is all one big soup that it, it just grows and it feeds itself. And um, yeah, it's a really exciting place to be. And how many bags did you sell through in that 16, 17 minutes? Um, I think it was around 600 something. Yeah, wow. Which, yeah, was pretty amazing. We'd been, <laughs> we'd been going hard for the physical event. And that's like, you know, that was a moment where people were really choosing what they were going to support. Hey, like mm-hmm. it was like a moment where people were like, um, these are the things that I want to see continue. Mm. And so many people were closed for so, so long. And having that, yeah, that financial buffer and then being able to to, 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 to come out of it stronger um, must have been huge for you. Yeah. I mean, it was a, definitely a lifesaver. I think there are quite a few moments in business where you're not sure what the next you know, solution is to a problem. Like, it's definitely not all straight line and smooth sailing. Um, but yeah, we did feel really fortunate when we came out of lockdown that we all still had jobs. And so then we, um, like, embarked on another project, which was um, a really, like, new way of fundraising for the Wellington City Mission because it was at a time where Black Lives Matter was happening in the States and um, you could just see, like, the social inequity kind of happening in front of your eyes. And um, I think the team all felt like, what can we do, you know? Um, we don't want to just... I mean, I'm very, like, don't love, like, kind of just Instagram posting support and things like that. So, but we're also at the same time a very, you know, we're a small company and didn't just have heaps of capital to throw at um, charity. And so we um, worked with the City Mission quite closely to um, bring on board a couple of, like, bigger companies that could pay for cost of goods sold of a few products but then we made them and put all of our time and like brand value into it and effort and resource and then we held this like one day event kind of in the Wellington City Mission store and everything was transacted directly through them and we ended up raising $51,000 for them which was like I guess kind of you know our way to to give back to the community after we'd come out of that lockdown and and felt you know, like we were pretty lucky. Yeah, love it. And I love that response because it's so easy to get quite upset about stuff happening in America, right? But very hard for us to positively influence it, like you say, with an Instagram post. But there are lots of things we can do in our own community that can make the community better, that are kind of tangible and real. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, I mean, and, and it's, you know, also good, I'm sure, to um, put effort into trying to help people in America who are doing good stuff too. But you really can make a lot more influence in your own backyard than kind of being angry about stuff that's so far away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're allowed to be angry about stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, of course. Um, hey, and, and then um, what are the plans for the future? Like, where do you see you may in 10 years? 
such an interesting question because I think, again, the goalposts are probably going to change several times in the next 10 years. At the moment, 15 days feels like a, a lifetime. But I think that we would really love to grow this um, club you made into a global community. I'm not sure what that looks like because post-pandemic, you know, the playing field is really wide open. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, it might be really, people might think you'd open stores or do um, like quite a traditional approach. But actually, I'm not sure how, what it's going to look like yet. I think that's been something really nice about being, um, you know, ha having all of your foundations kind of ripped out over the pandemic is there are just so many new and interesting ways to do things. And again, coming back to if this was easy, what would it look like? That's, you know, sort of how I'm approaching the future. And, and we have learned to just really react and be so agile. And I think it's, you have to have that vision and strategy of where you're going. But I almost think I might have laid it on too thick this year because we were so, so um, deep and these are our goals and these are our OKRs and these are our exact benchmarks that we're going to hit. And I actually think it potentially had the opposite effect of what you want it to, where everybody gets so focused on, on just doing those one things where you don't start to see other ways around the problem. And, and so I've had to draw that back a little bit and try and keep everyone in the very sort of reactive mindset because things are still like pretty turbulent in the in the economy and um, the general kind of environment that we're in at the moment. So I don't know what that will look like, but I know that I want to grow the brand and the product offering and, um, you know, the way that we serve our community internationally. And I think that's the ambition of the team as well. And what advice would you have for someone thinking of starting a business today in you know, they've seen a problem, they've seen something that's overlooked, and they've got a really beautiful solution. Um, be relentless. Go for it. Why not, you know? Um, you'll only ever be your own biggest fan, and, and I think um, just asking for help and just keep going. You know, if you keep going, you'll eventually be like the last person kind of left standing, and, and you will eventually get there. There's always, you know, a way to, to figure something out. And as a final thought, what will success be for you and for you, May? I, I mean, I think that it's it'll be growing our community and growing the product range and being able to collaborate with lots of different you know partners, not only in Aotearoa but in Australia and maybe the UK and maybe the US. Like I don't know. There's so many different areas and directions um, that this you know sort of journey could take. But I think at the end of the day, it's ultimately all about the team having. Um, a really great experience in building what we're building. And I think that's something that we've done really well so far. Like I've had a lot of fun and, you know, we've still got team members with us who have been with us for the whole seven years. And, and that's, you know, that's like a life thing that we've done together. Um, so I think it'll be more of that. Ah, that's so cool. I can't wait to see where you take it next. Thanks so much for joining us. That's Jessie Wong of UMA. Thanks very much for having me. So thank you to Jesse Wong, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Teihei Butler. Do follow Businesses Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. And keep an eye out for Going Global in your Businesses Boring feed, our new podcast with NZTE. Enohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Businesses Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Businesses Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz.
Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.